Hello and welcome to this episode of Second Nature. My name is May, and in today's episode, we are featuring Assistant Professor of Film and Media Studies at George Mason University, Hadam El Hibri. His recent book, Visions of Beirut, The Urban Life of Media Infrastructure, was released last year with Duke University Press. The book explores how the creation and circulation of images have shaped the urban spaces and cultural imaginaries of Beirut. Drawing on fieldwork and texts ranging from maps, urban plans, and aerial photographs to live television and drone camera footage, Professor Hibri traces how the technologies and media infrastructure that visualize the city are used to consolidate or destabilize regimes of power. Here is more about Professor Elhibri's work in his own words. My work is about media, cities, the Arab world, the politics of public space. I'm really interested in questions of visual culture. I'm really interested in questions of technology and infrastructure and the, uh, the ways that we might understand the past as a contingent thing that might have been otherwise, which can hopefully inform our intellectual and political resources for making the world otherwise. Professor El Hibri covers a wide range of methods in his book as he explores how visual culture is utilized in Beirut around regimes of power. He interrogates how media embody and exacerbate the region's political fault lines a journey which was inspired by a specific incident he experienced in Beirut. There's an opening anecdote in the book, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, which clued me into some of the questions which animate it, which is in 2006, uh, earlier in that year, the Lebanese political party and militia Hezbollah had fought a war with Israel, which it declared a divine victory. I hope you can hear the scare quotes in my, in my voice around that phrase. Uh, later that year, after an increase in political tension between Hezbollah and an opposing political bloc, they called for a sit-in demonstration around parliament and in the city's downtown. Completely shut down like this ordinarily heavily policed and very manicured part of the city. So I'm like, you know, as like the like the enterprising graduate student that I was, I was like, oh, I need to like go back. I need to, when I go back, I need to go see what's up with this. Uh, I go back, you know, around Christmas time to see family and whatnot. And it's like compl- a completely different uh, part of the city. First of all, there were people there at night, which ordinarily there weren't. I went there at night. Uh, throngs of crowds and you know people selling food and street vendors and, and all that kind of thing. And I noticed that at a few key parts in, in the neighborhood, they'd set up these large projection screens. And what was playing on the screen was the party's live TV channel, the live satellite feed on the screen. And then I noticed that what you had at certain key moments was live coverage of this sit-in protest at the sit-in protest. Now, this isn't just like, oh, cool, I'm seeing the Nizam Adin person. What like what caught fire in my head then was, oh, like there's a politics to uh, the circulation of images in the spaces of the city. 
images are important to regimes of power, both those trying to shape the city so as to transform it, and engage in a governmental program of, of shaping social relations, but also in attempts to contest it. Um, what I saw there was that there's a, what I clued into there was there's a relationship not just between the circulation of images, but the mobility of people through the spaces of the city. So what, what I wanted to do is to explain that, to contextualize this, to try to make sense of what is specific, but also uh, what is not so totally new about things like this. And this is where the, the book expands from. This is how I, I expanded into uh, like a, a bit of a historical deeper dive into how images have been used in attempts to uh, map and plan and, and shape the city in successive historical eras and different political regimes up through an argument about infrastructure and its relationship to spaces of the city in which I try to think about, especially say things like a live TV broadcast as itself a type of, a, type of, of an event. Um, and this is where I end up think, ending up thinking about things like concealment, because not, not everything reduces to what we see on screen. A lot of things are deliberately unseen. There's the politics of recognition. We are here. We are claiming our rights, and we're and our presence in this city uh, uh, is is a type of political claim, where the positive political value is attaining visibility. But in that war earlier that year, it was all, the, one of the key political stakes was around being hidden girl fighters hiding from the vertical gaze. Throughout the 20th century, colonial, economic, and military mapping projects helped produce and govern Beirut spaces. In the 1990s, the imagery of its post-Civil War downtown reconstruction cast Beirut as a site of financial investment in ways that obscured its ongoing crises. During and following the 2006 Israel-Hezbollah War, Hezbollah's use of live television broadcasts of fighting and protests along with its construction of a war memorial museum at a former secret military bunker, demonstrate the tension between visualizing space and the practices of concealment. To reach these various observations, Professor El-Hibri went to expected and unexpected places, working within the archive and with archivists interpreting the presence and absence of material during his research process that culminated into his unique book that explores Beirut's connection of visual culture through power and resistance across many media. The teachers who I had always encouraged me to change my expertise, to follow the question, to follow the problem, rather than shoehorn uh, critique into what I already know a lot about. Right. And trying to answer questions like this, I was like, oh, like, I need to actually learn quite a bit about urban studies. I need to learn about urban history. I need to learn about the history of, of broadcasting. And I need to think about Lebanon and a transnational uh, uh, array of forces and social trajectories. Um, now, inevitably, you do have to say, OK, I'm only going to be talking about this thing and not this other thing. I mean, methodologically, I'm, my background is in uh, the 
humanists and the critical theorists uh, and the historians got to me before the anthropologists did. And so uh, I guess I'm most at home when I'm thinking through the archive and I'm thinking through texts and you know institutional documents and so on. But eventually, if you really want to get at stuff, you have to actually talk to living people. So this is where I end up you know, speaking with journalists and financial professionals and newsroom directors and a whole range of people, GIS engineers and so on. Of course, you should also always talk to archivists because archivists usually know things about the history that you're talking about and how it's embodied in documents in ways that is, that is underappreciated. There's a whole other... There's, there's lots of stories about archivists that I'm, that I'm happy to share if, if you like. Um, so methodologically, this is how I, I sort of changed. Uh, I started out thinking I had one project which would say something about maps, say something about post-war construction, and say something about the 2006 war, um, primarily looking at like news programs and documentary and fictional programming that came, at, came after it. Uh, eventually, I was like, no, the most important thing about this is actually the live broadcast itself, the materiality of the live feed. And this is where uh, my familiarity with media theory and infrastructure studies, I was already sort of interested in infrastructure studies because of thinking about cities. Um, but suddenly it became newly important uh, to think about media at this, this point. The reason why there's a fourth chapter in the book is almost somewhat by accident. Right. So when I was originally doing field work, uh, this was in 2010, like 11 years ago now, right? I was hanging out with friends and uh, some, suddenly a friend who's a, who's a journalist shows up. She's completely overwhelmed and she like, you know, comes in and she's like, I need a drink. I need a drink. And I'm like, what happened? I'm like, well, I just came back from a press conference for the opening of Hezbollah's Militia Museum of the Resistance. I'm like, hold the phone. What now? And so a week later, I go and I've been many, many times since then. So this is like, all right, I need to methodologically get acquainted with ethnography. And as I, as I got to think, as more and more started to think about this museum, I was like, if I just rely on, I mean, certainly there's a lot here about memory and memorialization and museums and, institution, and institutionalized, systematized culture that's important here. But equally important is like an experiential dimension of this museum. So thinking, thinking ethnographically, thinking in terms of a sensory ethnography became important. I don't so that so that last chapter is the one that's sort of the closest to an ethnographic method. Although of course, I'm, while I, I deeply admire ethnography, it's not the, the the method that I personally know the most about. Um, so I use it sort of advisedly. <laughs> in a partial manner. There's, yeah, there's a, a range and a scope that I try to cover. And part of that is I, I wanted to follow a set of uh, problems that would be of interest to visual culture studies scholars, media studies scholars, urban studies folks, cultural studies folks, rather than just people who are already interested in Lebanon or the Arab world or the Middle East. Um, some of it, I, I try to, rather than theorize about, theorize from my, my vocation, the, the country that I'm working on.
encompassing such a wide expanse of material and cultural sites, Professor El Hibri worked through many transformations of the book, which expanded his own research practices and the many connections he made in the process. The years-long process also helped refine his own theories regarding how visual culture manifested throughout the city, in its people, by its government, and by intersecting forces. The book as a whole goes through three major transformations. First, from a dissertation to a, a book project. A second major transformation in the three years that I spent um, living, living in Lebanon when I was at American University of Beirut, which side note is like the only time I've actually ever really lived there full time. Um, and the third major real transformation happens in like actually finalizing the book manuscript between book manuscript and the final revisions after I got uh, feedback from two anonymous reviewers. Um, so yeah, there's a series of moments where it really transforms. There's a couple of things which surprised me as I like went into the archive and went into the field. You know, we don't often value getting it wrong before uh, going into the field enough. We don't talk about it enough. If you go into the field and you don't have a moment of vertigo where you're like, oh, this is not at all what I thought it was. Things are totally unlike what I thought they were. I need to completely start over again. I got it all wrong. If you don't have that experience, you probably asked the wrong question to start out with or haven't been paying enough attention. Um, and I started out thinking I had like this sort of Foucauldian project around archives and power and the shaping of space and the, the visual moment is the moment of power which shapes and, and rends social fabrics is the map is epistemic violence. The map is uh, the carving up of polities to suit the needs of the colonizer. But then when you look at mapping practices, right, you start to see like that. I started to notice it like, oh, like maps are like, when they even get them made, it's a much more contingent thing. Even at like the high point of colonization where the French like just committing brutal massacres of people to put down national revolts or, or liberation movements, right? are still unable to well and truly bend the city into the shape that they want to. And there's a number of reasons why that is. Uh, we can, I, you can go quite deep into this history if you want to, but basically I, I ended up coming away with a sense of, oh, like I, I should only be looking at maps in the spaces of the city so that I can tell a story about uh, how the space of the city itself shapes the maps, not just how the maps shape the city. It's not just urban planners draw up plans to then re, to remake roads and infrastructure systems. Certainly a lot of that does happen, but just as much the politics of the city of a local elite partnered with the French mandate, for example, turns back onto the urban planning process itself, shaping it, blocking it. It's equally a story of plans which get, which get left in the drafting room or never leaving the drafting room as it is plans drafted and then shaping the city. Of course, when you add in a, the vertical vector of aerial photography, you start to understand that the city is being transformed in relation to an array of visual forms, not, not just being transformed to be a visual form, right? There's a lot here which can be said about uh, modernity's uh, fascination with remaking the social world to repeat uh, 
an ordered visual uh, uh, array. When I looked at, when I wanted to write about uh, post-war construction, part of what I thought I was going to be telling a story about was the introduction of digital mapping methods and the relationship to finance and how that changed things. And what I found similarly was that, you know, in post-war in post societies like Lebanon, like memory and talking about memory becomes a really vexed subject. And there's quite a bit which had been written about uh, the politics of post-war memory in a place like Lebanon, how it relates to uh, a longer history of diaspora, how it relates to uh, sectarianism, right? This weird uh, grafting of ethno-religious group belonging onto political representation. Now you have siloed and, and differing memory cultures, which then intersect with the national and the transnational. But while there's certainly a lot of really interesting work that happens, say, by that gets made by filmmakers, artists, writers, and so on in, say, the 15, 20 years after the Civil War, and really interesting work just happened on it, I wanted to see what uh, images were doing for like people who wanted to make money off of post-war construction. And this, this is the book's, this is that chapter's focus on images of before, after, and particularly the Solidaire project, uh, which is granted uh, control of, well, the mo well, certainly the most lucrative uh, project, um, which is around the, cent the city center, what is now called downtown Beirut. What I found that is the, the dominant trope of in, in many liberal imaginaries is that the people are not remembering enough or correctly because the war was traumatic and therefore the role of art is to get people to remember so that the past doesn't repeat itself and trauma can be healed. And what always resonated, what always uh, sounded so hollow about that kind of preachiness and saviorism of that kind of discourse is it imagines that like people have forgotten the war and you spend any amount of time with people, all they're doing is remembering war. All they're doing is being triggered by spaces and sights and sounds and smells, even as the city is transforming in some places quite considerably, quite uh, dramatically. But I also noticed that the work of images wasn't hiding the war. It was it was actually turning the war into like a center of gravity. These images of before, after aren't uh, images of before, the, oh, look how great it was before the war and now look at it after it's, it's a, the city's a ruin. It's the city is a ruin and here's what it will look like in the bright glittering future to come. We can't see, we can't have too much debate about what kind of post-war construction we're gonna have because we need to just get things done and there's only one plan and this is it. So images of before, after start to be uh, the end, are, are a form of the end of history discourse, right? They are urban space subordinated purely to uh, local elites and their bid to partner with global finance, at least, at least in the shape that it looked in the 1990s. Images are secondarily useful to transforming public consensus, informing public sensibilities. They're primarily useful in attracting investment. This is, this is the argument that I make in the chapter. I'm trying to show how and why that is. The other thing, so 
how, how was I, how did my project change over the course? You know, it, when you in visual culture studies, there's sort of two things that people are really good at talking about. People are really good at talking about spectacle. And there's a range of uh, intellectual trajectories which talk about spectacle of some kind. Um, and people are really good at talking about surveillance, right? And then, you know, you could say they're not just talking about those moments of power, they're also good at talking about alternatives to and resistances to those things, right? That a uh, range of either popular actors or uh, artists uh, conceive of. But I found that if that was how I were to make sense of the 2006 war, I'd be missing something. Uh, wars are in our, uh, in like people often will turn to war and the mil and military devices when they think of media theory and media history. These moments of intensification that give us new devices, new systems. Um, but oftentimes, this is the story of technical development in Western powers, and not so much the history of stuff in the field and how stuff works out in the world. I couldn't make sense of the visual vectors of 2006 purely through, spec through spectacle, surveillance, and resistance. What I needed was, oh, I need to make sense of hiding, of remaining hidden, of a movement underground, of concealment. This is where, this is what, after like spending months and months and even years like trying to like make sense of how can I describe this war adequately, I need to think about concealment. It's about, it's about guerrilla fighters, not just uh, their camouflage and, these, and the secret communication uh, systems that they have, like Hezbollah have their own fiber optic network, for example, not, which is uh, like hard and not connected to the rest of the global internet, for example, right? You have, there's, it's, it's, the, the, it's the, uh, the visual modality and movement that it enables. Concealment is the remaining hidden in motion. It's the keeping the weapons cache hidden. The thing I try to make very clear in that chapter is like concealment is not the moment when resistance is achieved. Concealment is a moment of antagonism, but it's just as much, it could just as much apply to, uh, say, ICE here in the US tracking down people. Uh, it could just uh, just as easily apply to undercover cops. It can be uh, queer. It can be the uh, the refusal of recognition in forms like queer opacity, and in the politics of indigenous resistance, which does not seek the fulfillment of rights from the colonizing uh, the colonizing sovereign power. Um, it's concealment is a range of of things. It is a set of techniques. Uh, it, is, it is not inherently like good. And this is where you end up, I end up making sense of the, the Leeds Museum, uh, which is to say, like, look, you know, concealment can become like a museum attraction where, you know, it's, I, I, I argue that concealment is best understood as a part of an infrastructure, as, as, a, as a live relation. Concealment is part of an event. Um, what happens at the Leeds Museum is not concealment itself, but a facsimile of concealment for that's you know made easily digestible and geared towards not party insiders, 
right? It's not geared to people who are, who are already part of the Hezbollah movement, but it's geared towards a global audience, right? They want the signs to be in English. They want you to ask them if they're anti-Semites and terrorists that they can correct you and say, you know, well, thank you for that question, but you know, here's, here's where we're coming from and here's why we, we've taken the actions that we have and any reasonable person and even you would probably do the same in our situation. There, it's, it's geared towards a, a turning to the outside. It is not, the, uh, so it is not just uh, the speaking of the belief for the believer. It is the embrace of the non-believer. This is what, this is what gift shops are about, right? There's this, uh, there's this making a consumable, the sacred experience. Even with the ambitious range the book has, Professor Elhibri hopes that his work can be useful for other researchers to build on, and also for anyone who is interested in analyzing media and infrastructure through theories of concealment, especially in how media and infrastructure can be thought of as a process of negotiation, resistance, and power consolidation in post-colonial cities. One way to think of it might be a process. Right? That infrastructure need maintenance and repair, including before, in, in many cases, before it's officially launched or officially open. Or the, you, know, you have to start doing maintenance on the highway before the, the whole length is completed on the, on the train tracks, before the train can run from station A to station B. But when we're talking about media, they're also incomplete in the sense that the infrastructure only actually becomes fully actualized when it's turned on, right? In the moment of the of the bouncing of the, of the signal from the transponder to the receiver to the TV set, right? And so it's incomplete um, in that sense. What, what do I hope are the takeaways that people have from the book? I hope it opens something up. Well, there's a few different audiences that I hope it speaks to. I hope it gives something to people who think about media and visual culture. Um, how I think about concealment is, I hope, like a, not like the last word, but maybe a first word. I would love for people with backgrounds in sound studies, uh, for people with uh, more deeply attuned understanding of embodied technique and, and practice, particularly in, say, media anthropology or various field, subfields of sociology. To, to take this and expand on it and say, here's what Hatsum got right, here's what he got wrong. Um, I think concealment's important, but I don't think that I've completely exhausted what can be said about it. Um, I hope it also, the book also gives us a different understanding of the, the instrument, instrumentalization of culture. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's you know, running debates around what is called operational images, operative images, which uh, casts a, is, is a big influence on how I think about images in a few different uh, instances. So I hope I add to those conversations as well, taking this conversation to places like uh, Lebanon, to formerly colonized places, to the global south, or, or Swana or Mina, or however people want to understand that part of West Asia. That's, that's some of the contributions I hope it has. I also hope it helps uh, people in urban studies to think, about, to I hope it offers them a set of resources to think about media, to think about technology, 
to think about infrastructure. Visions of Beirut is out now via the following method. My book is Visions of Beirut, The Urban Life of Media Infrastructure. You can find it at Duke University Press. And there is a, a code for 30% off that we can drop in the show notes. Thank you so much to Professor Hibri for his time and attention in completing this interview. Thank you for listening to Second Nature. Special thanks to Professor Hibri and Professor Albanese. This episode was edited and hosted by May Santiago. Music by Daniel Birch. <laughs>